Coming up, how computers took control of your life. Yes, your life. What does Donald Trump's Twitter outage say about the state of internet security? And Amazon regroups in its ongoing pursuit of Netflix. It is Tuesday, the best day of the week. This is Steve DeShankle, and you're listening to the New England Tech Podcast. Tech Podcast is brought to you this week by the same people who bring it to you every week. Hammerhead Content Management Solutions for media organizations and content creators. You love to write, so why do you hate to publish? Visit us at hammerheadcms.com. Music in the show is by Kurt Baker, Lame Drivers, Monkey Mind, The Pharaohs, and The Barracudas. Do you by any chance like karaoke? It is a polarizing thing. I personally love karaoke, and yet I know a lot of people, including good friends of mine, who hate karaoke. Some of these people I'm married to, as a matter of fact. But karaoke, like I said, is polarizing. Some people love getting up there, grabbing a mic, belting out a classic, and some people would rather die in a corner than do that. But I'm one of those people who love it. And I actually got the chance to do it last week. I don't get to do it that often because I don't know that many people who love to do it. But last week I got the opportunity to do so at Boombox, which is just a quick plug here, a terrific Providence, Rhode Island karaoke lounge at the Dean Hotel. It's just this great atmosphere. It's this small space. It's casual. It's easy. There's no big intimidating stage. You're kind of in the center of the room singing. But I didn't really come here to talk about the details of this karaoke lounge. What I came here to talk about was the fact that even karaoke, this very technical thing, when you really get right down to it, this very digital age type of activity, really came to prominence, I would say, in the 80s, is impacted in a a very positive way by our new digital age, the, the evolution of our digital age. Because Karaoke traditionally has these large books that you go through, you leaf through, right? Typically, there's two of them. There's one for songs listed by the artist, and there's one for songs listed by the song title. So that's generally the way karaoke works, right? And you go through the books, and it's awkward, and you flip, 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 and sometimes the book is taken. You have to wait till someone else uses it. So it can be a, a somewhat difficult and frustrating thing. But when I was Boombox, I noticed that they advertised that they had an app. Now, they didn't develop the app themselves. The app is from, uh, or actually is called Heel Sonic. I don't know the company that makes it, but Heel Sonic is the name of the app. And with Heel Sonic, not only can you scroll through all the songs that they have in their karaoke catalog, but you can actually queue up the song. If you're in a private room, because they have private karaoke rooms, if you're in the big public lounge, you can't do it for whatever reason. But if you're in a private room, you can queue up the songs with the Heel Sonic app. So I thought that was really, really interesting because karaoke in a lot of ways 
has remained stuck where it used to be. I don't really understand why this is, but when you actually look at the words on the screen, they're not the fonts are not anti-aliased, which means smoothed. Uh, if, if you look at the screen of your smartphone, for example, it probably has anti-aliased fonts. Whereas if you look at the readout from a console in the 80s, it's not an anti-aliased font. It's all jaggy. And typically, the karaoke fonts are pretty jaggy, just like in the old days. They haven't been improved. You'd think these improvements would have happened by now, but they haven't. I don't really understand why. Maybe because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Nobody's really complaining about this. It works. So people are satisfied to keep it like it is. But there have nonetheless been advancements. Even in stodgy old karaoke, and of course I love karaoke, I don't mean to call it stodgy, but even in this medium that hasn't really changed much in the past 30 years since it's been a thing, even here, technology is making our entertainment easier. It's making our experience more pleasant. So that's what I've been thinking about. That's the kind of thing that I think about when I when I go and do karaoke. It's like, for me, 75%, how am I going to rock this song? And by the way, I killed on Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads. That was one of my best karaoke experiences ever. Very proud of myself there. But it was like 75%, how am I going to handle this? 25%, what is technology doing to change our karaoke experience, to, to improve the entertainment that we're getting to maximize our pleasure in doing this. So that, that's that's what I was thinking about this past week. I just wanted to share with you guys. And maybe, maybe with the existence of the Heel Sonic app and the betterment of the karaoke experience in these very significant but small ways, maybe it's only a matter of time before we finally get some anti-aliased fonts and clip that doesn't look like it came out of Corel Draw in 1997. Maybe that'll happen soon. I wouldn't hold my breath, but all things are possible with technology. I wonder what's in the news this week. First up today, the infamous Twitter account of our leader, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, the actual president, and today is the first anniversary of his election. His Twitter account, the account that got him there, the account that got him in the door, went offline briefly last week, and it turned out that it was thanks to a rogue Twitter employee. Yes, this really happened. So we've discussed on this podcast before that a lot of what Donald Trump says on Twitter may be grounds for a ban according to Twitter's own terms of service. Several weeks ago, we covered Rose McGowan as part of the giant Harvey Weinstein Hollywood sexual harassment and assault scandal. She posted some controversial things and Twitter banned her. People thought, well, Donald Trump has never been banned. He's said some offensive things. Why hasn't he been banned? Twitter says, well, he never violated our terms of service. Others said, well, maybe he did violate your terms of service. Well, last week, things finally came to a head and his account went down. But it was back up again 
within just a few minutes. Now, what happened here? He did not violate the terms of service. No, there was a Twitter employee enjoying his or her, the, the identity of this Twitter employee has not been revealed, but his or her last day on the job, moving on to greener pastures, hopefully, and this employee decided, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I would like to do on my last day at Twitter with nothing to lose? I'm going to take down Donald Trump's account. Nobody else will do it, but I have the power to do it. So this person did it. It was down. And within minutes, it was back up. Now, this incident demonstrates to me two diametrically opposing ideas. Number one. How easy it is for a single person to have an impact, a wide-ranging impact on an influential, popular digital product. Twitter is a huge digital product. Everybody knows Twitter. It won Donald Trump the presidency. One person was able to take Donald Trump's account down. Now, as someone who has been involved in digital product for more than 20 years, I can certainly relate to being in that position. You know, one of the coolest things I've experienced in my career was being at the keyboard and at the mouse and at the monitor in front of a content management system that allowed me to deploy things. They always say deploy. There's a big button that says deploy. It's like launching missiles. It's really cool. You don't get to do that anywhere else, right? Where do you get to deploy unless you're in the Army or the Air Force and launching missiles? Now, not quite as impactful a thing to do, the deployments that I've done, but at least it can feel cool. I think it can feel pretty cool. And you can do big world-changing things. I've had the power to take down entire sites. I've never abused that power because I am an honorable and professional person, even if I was feeling upset with my situation or upset with a certain person or upset with the company, I haven't done that, and I would not do that, and frankly, I wouldn't have taken down Donald Trump's Twitter account because I'm one person, and Twitter is a giant organization, and they get to decide, not me. That's the way I think of it. However, I can relate to being in that position, and I can understand that level of power, and it is a little frightening that one person can do that because you may not like the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. You may not like him. Certainly, uh, a lot of people in my world don't like him very much, possibly including the host of this podcast. But nonetheless, next time it may be somebody you do like. But think about this. This is number two. This is concept number two, opposed to that first concept. I know we talked a lot about that first one. So you may have forgotten we're doing two concepts here that are opposed to each other. Number two, think about the fact that it came back up within minutes. So even though one person had that impact, even though one person did that, it also came back really quickly. So think about how many controls a company like Twitter must have in place to spot something like that. And it doesn't even necessarily seem off the top of your head like the kind of thing you, you need to set up controls to spot. It doesn't necessarily seem like that. But Twitter somehow managed to get it back. They figured it out and they got it back. Now, how did they even know what was happening? Well, that's a good question. And Twitter probably won't publicly talk about that. I certainly don't know. 
Uh, one can speculate, based on my history in the game, I can sort of reverse engineer it. It may have been a flood of complaints from users that they suddenly got and they had a, a uh, an alert set up uh, because of that, uh, that hugely increased volume, which enabled them to bring it back uh, within minutes. It could have been simply some alerts that they had set up regarding accounts being taken down that, that somebody noticed. It could have been a, a number of things. But regardless, they got it. They managed to get it. And presumably if this happened again, they would get it again. But what if it did happen on a much larger scale? This is just some employee messing around. We don't even know what this employee's job was. We don't know this employee's identity. What if it had been someone who really knew what they were doing? What if it had been someone within the company who could have really done some damage? Or an external actor, such as a state actor, right? What about the Russians, just to bring it all back to Donald Trump? What about state-sponsored cyber terrorism? A country can do some serious damage, as we've seen in our electoral politics in the past year and change, right? It is an increasingly large concern, and not just a country, but even an individual with enough resources and enough willpower and enough know-how could potentially do something very serious in a way that affects not just Donald Trump, not just an individual who you may agree with politically, but all of us, right? Banking systems, security systems. This little incident kind of reminds you about how easy it is and how amazing it is that something to that scale that really impacts us hasn't happened yet, hasn't really happened. We've had a lot of hacking going on and a lot of outages of various sites, a lot of denial of service, but has anything really happened that affected our society? No, it hasn't, but it could. It could. Security is huge business as a result of this today. And I can tell you from my personal experience that it is a tremendous consideration for major internet companies. This is something they're thinking a lot about, but even though they're thinking a lot about it, it's not necessarily as big a concern for them as it should be, given what's at stake. I will give internet companies I've worked for and with this, they are getting more vigilant, they're getting more vigilant all the time. But at the same time, potential attackers are getting smarter and they have more resources. And it may only be a matter of time before somebody gets through and really causes some serious havoc. Next up, Amazon Studios has announced expansion plans after an executive bloodbath. Now, Amazon Studios is the streaming media arm of Amazon. Not just streaming media, actually. They produce theatrical films for theaters as well, but ultimately, they want it all to come back to their platform, Amazon Prime Video. Now, Amazon has big money and big resources. Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, once again, after being briefly the richest man in the world, uh, several months ago, is now the richest man in the world. Again, he surpassed Bill Gates. Uh, now, Amazon doesn't necessarily want to end Netflix, but they do have Netflix in their site. They want to at least be another Netflix, if not surpass Netflix. So far, Amazon has failed in that goal. Now, I personally think Amazon has produced some very good shows. I watch much less Amazon Prime Video than I do Netflix, 
but I do watch a significant amount of Amazon Prime Video. Transparent is certainly a terrific show. It's won a lot of awards. Uh, but Transparent, from what I've heard, Amazon, like Netflix, doesn't reveal its viewership numbers, but Transparent doesn't really have a lot of viewers from what people think. It's a prestige show, but nobody has been able to prove that anyone's actually watching it. I watch it, but who else is watching it? There was another show, Good Girls Revolt, they had, which I thought was very, very good, but they canceled after one season, uh, and that was a little bit controversial. We don't really have time to go into why. But, um, you know, it just may have been a, a good show that the right people didn't like, even though people were watching it. That's near the, neither here nor there. The point is that Amazon has not reached the kind of cultural penetration that Netflix has. And Jeff Bezos is himself apparently upset about this. He really wanted to be further along right now. And why not? Why not? Amazon has advantages that Netflix doesn't. First of all, Amazon has its existing user base of Prime customers who signed up for the, the free shipping, the free two-day shipping on all Amazon products. All of them have access to this video, but they're not watching it so much. I, as a Prime customer, once got an email saying, why aren't you watching our video? Now, the funny thing is I was watching their video, but they, they, they said, well, we, you haven't watched any videos, which was not true. So that was a little bit uh, of a malfunction on their part. But it did show that they were concerned that Prime members were not watching their videos. So Jeff Bezos is upset about this, even though they've got these advantages. Another advantage, for example, is that they produce their own hardware, the Amazon Fire TV Stick. And I have one. It heavily pushes Amazon content to you. But even though this is actually the second most popular streaming device, people still aren't watching their videos so much on it, even though the videos are front and center. So... Bezos is upset. Amazon Studios, Amazon Studios executives have been dropping like flies. Roy Price, the head of Amazon Studios, he went down in the aftermath of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. It turns out that he had had some sexual harassment issues of his own. Conrad Riggs, the director of unscripted programming, he was forced out. And I think the reason he was forced out is very strange and fascinating. Uh, a big part of it was because the unscripted programming that he, uh, well, actually the only part of it, I would imagine, is that the unscripted programming he was producing wasn't performing, but the Grand Tour was one of the shows that Variety, in an article, cited uh, as underperforming, which I thought was strange because the Grand Tour, I had heard, was very, very popular until I heard this from Variety. The Grand Tour being Amazon's follow-up to uh, the, uh, the very popular British car show Top Gear. Not really my cup of tea, but I thought a lot of people loved the Grand Tour. Joe Lewis, the head of comedy for Amazon Studios, actually the head of comedy, drama, and VR. Talk about the digital age. What kind of title is that? The head of comedy, drama, and VR, which I can only assume stands for virtual reality. I don't think it means anything else, right? Uh, but he left after, this is uh, hilarious, an investigation uh, in, internally within Amazon about him getting his girlfriend cast in The Tick, in the show The Tick. Uh, I guess he pushed to have his girlfriend in it. Nobody wanted his girlfriend in it, but he insisted. So he was forced out as a result of that. As Despite all this, actually not despite all this, but in line with all this, Amazon remains very serious. So they'll be replacing all these executives with executives they think can do a better job. They are also hiring 84 people right now. There are 84 job listings out there if you're interested in applying uh, for Amazon's video operation. Now, Amazon's video budget is $4.5 billion. 
dollars, and that's due to increase next year, and that is a lot of money. Note that it is still barely more than half of Netflix's content budget, but Netflix is producing an insane amount of content. If you're a Netflix user, you've probably noticed that, that there's a new show coming every week or every couple, well, actually more than one new show every week, but new show that you're interested in probably coming once every couple weeks. Netflix is just producing so much content, it's nuts. Amazon doesn't need that much to be successful. Like I said earlier, they're not necessarily gunning to beat Amazon. They're just gunning to be in the same game as Amazon, which they, oh, sorry, Amazon is gunning to be in the same game as Netflix, I should say, which they're not right now. They're not really in that league. They don't need Netflix's budget to be successful, but that $4.5 billion budget hasn't worked so far. Increasing it, they're hoping, might help. Throw money at the problem, see, see, if, that, uh, see if that works. Now, one problem just in case you're wondering why I'm talking primarily primarily about entertainment here on the New England Tech Podcast, one problem I think might be the technology, right? There's all this focus on the content, but what about the technology? That's ignored to a large degree. Now, as I said, I have a Fire TV, an Amazon Fire TV. Amazon, the experience is great. I love the Fire TV, but I also have a Roku TV, and I've noticed that Amazon's app on the Roku TV isn't great. It looks a little like the Fire TV app or experience because it's not a standalone app on the Fire TV, but it's clunkier, it's not as pleasant, it's nowhere near as good as Netflix. It's not as easy to browse for the content you want. The reason the shows are where they are is a little unclear. Uh, the architecture is not terrific. That really needs to improve. If Amazon wants to be in the game, they have to focus not just on the entertainment, on the content, but on the technology. And this is something really near and dear to my heart because content and technology, the marriage of those two things, that's what I have personally built my career on. And what I think is critical, you can't have one without the other or people will not follow you. The users will not be there. So it's not just the content, it's the technology. This is one place that Amazon has struggled. But this is Amazon. Are you gonna be the one to count them out? I'm certainly not. So stay tuned. You like me, cause you could go downhill. I can't promise that you love me. I remember the first computer I ever got. It was a Commodore 64 when I was a kid. And it took cartridges and you could mainly play games on it. There was some word processing uh, software available, but as a kid, I wasn't really interested in that. I was interested in the games. Later we had an Apple IIc, but the most exciting one of all was getting a Gateway 2000 PC when I was in high school at the big gray tower. That was our first PC. And it was world changing because today I'm still working with computers. And that was really the start of it because it was the first full-blown personal computer that we had. Now that Commodore 64, that Apple IIc, that Gateway 2000, those were computers with a capital C in all caps. Computers, everybody knew they were computers. 
and everyone knew that when you talked about a computer, that's what a computer was. It was a big gray box with an electronic brain and inputs and a monitor. That's the way it used to be. Now, people older than me will remember when computers will remember when computers meant something else uh, entirely. They, it meant a, a giant device filling up an entire room, or it meant Alan Turing's machine that he used to break German codes during World War II. You may remember that from the Imitation Game, the very successful film of a couple of years ago, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, here's what I find funny, right? You had this evolution of computers from the Turing machine to the giant computer that filled the room in the lab to the scaled down personal computer that was a big gray box with a monitor and a, maybe a mouse after a certain time and a keyboard. And then computers continued to evolve, but the way we thought of computers stopped evolving. When we say computer today, we still think of that box. We think of a laptop computer maybe, which is a compact version of the box, but still the box. It's still something with a monitor and uh, where you can input and output. That's what, that's what we think of computers as being, still today, but that's not what computers necessarily are. Computers are everywhere. They're everywhere, they're in everything more than ever before, and it's only getting more and more and more dramatic. But we don't think of them as computers. We don't think of computers as being everywhere. Think about this. I've talked about this on the podcast before. You can get a, you can't get a truly cheap new car today. There was a time when you used to be able to get a dirt, dirt cheap new car from some off-brand, from Yugoslavia or something. You can't do that today. Why not? Well, there are a number of reasons. Safety regulations are one of them that have to be adhered to, but another reason is that cars are computers. It is a very, very sophisticated, advanced computer. Everything, if you had car trouble, you know that anything can be diagnosed by hooking up to the computer in your car. It doesn't matter how cheap your car is or how low-end your car is. It's never going to be that cheap because it has to be a computer. What about the smartphone in your pocket? That's a computer. What about the streaming media stick that you have plugged into the back of your TV. We just talked in the news segment about the Amazon Fire TV, right? They have a Fire TV stick. What about that? That's a computer. It's a computer that you're using to watch TV. So computers really have taken over our lives. And we interact with them dozens of times a day, if not more. But you don't think about it. Now, why don't you think about it? Well, maybe because they're unobtrusive. When you choose to purchase a computer and open up the box and plug in the keyboard and plug in the mouse and turn it on, you know, maybe you think of, of what you're doing. You think of the fact that you're computerizing, as I like to say. But when something is just there, right? When something is just helping you, your Amazon Echo, right? It's, it's very much just a part of your life. You don't think about it as being a computer because it's unobtrusive by nature. That's the big innovation, unobtrusive computers. But ironically, in that innovation, we stop thinking of these computers as computers and more and more devices are moving in that direction. Your alarm clock, for example, well, it's probably been a computer for a while, but it's becoming a more sophisticated 
computer with more sophisticated functionality. A lot of people use their smartphones as alarm clocks, as do I, but there are standalone ones that also have the ability to set different alarms for different days, different tones, et cetera, et cetera. Probably the best example of this is the Nest, right? The connected thermostat, uh, which you can plug into your wall and can control the temperature dynamically. It's a computer. I've talked about this on the podcast before. Everyone has always talked about the connected refrigerator. I've been hearing about the connected refrigerator for 20 plus years. Every single article about how technology is going to run our lives mentions the connected refrigerator. Oh, I'm running low on milk. Well, my refrigerator will order me more milk. And to this day, it hasn't happened. Everyone's predicting it's going to happen. I just don't think there's a lot of demand for it. But you know what? The way things are moving, we may finally, finally be in the place where it's going to happen, where you where you will be running low on milk and your refrigerator will detect that and will order you more milk, which will come maybe the same day via Amazon same day delivery or something like that as Amazon continues to run more and more. What about washing machines? My washing machine actually weighs my clothes beforehand so it knows exactly how to wash them. Right? It does this thing before it starts doing anything where it pushes the clothes back and forth. It's weighing them and ultimately it's determining exactly what it needs to do. And then at the end, it plays a happy little song. And there are so many things that are probably going on controlled by the computer and the washing machine that we don't even really think about or know about during the wash cycle. It's everywhere, right? So where... Are computers going? What are they going to be in next? You know, this past weekend, we observed the end of daylight savings time. And I spent a good, you know, 15 minutes changing all the clocks in the house. And I couldn't help but thinking about why am I doing, why do I have to do this? Why aren't the clocks changing themselves, right? Now, these just these cheap clocks that you buy at Ikea or Pier 1 or whatever, and throw on the wall. These aren't computers right now, but as computers get cheaper and cheaper and smaller and small, smaller and less and less obtrusive, why not? Why, in 10 years, will I be changing clocks for daylight savings time or will they all know that this is the day it ends and they need to change themselves? Now, some, some clocks already are computers, right? The, the clock in your smartphone, for example, the clock in your computer, they can change dynamically. Um, in fact, somebody actually told me just yesterday that their car's clock, when daylight savings time ended, changed automatically. Mine didn't do that, but this person's clock changed dynamically. I don't know the technology that was used to, to do it. Did, did it just know the date? Is it connected to the internet? I don't know. But we can pretty safely assume that down the road, everybody's clock uh, in their car will do that. Now, Moore's Law, uh, developed many years ago or conceived many years ago uh, by an Intel executive, uh, demands that computers continue to get smaller. To, they, they continue to support more and more transistors. Uh, and uh, they will always, according to Moore's Law, now some people think there are limits to Moore's Law, but the law states that they will always continue to get smaller and smaller and be able to do more and more and be more powerful. Uh, they'll get cheaper and more sophisticated, right? So Moore's Law, even though there is evidence that maybe it has slowed down, is continuing. 
And that means that these computers will continue to get cheaper and more sophisticated. Moore's law has held true for decades. Um, and that's why today we already can't escape computers. We can't escape them. And someday, someday, they may be in literally everything, including people. People are already starting to microchip kids. Dogs have been microchipped for a while. Maybe we'll all be computers after a while. This is not my original idea. Many, many scary books and movies have been written and made about exactly this issue, but it's really the natural progression of technology being everywhere. So next time your clock in your car changes automatically for daylight savings time, next time you use a streaming media stick to watch video over the internet, Next time you open your refrigerator and there's no milk and your refrigerator orders milk, it's going to happen. Next time that happens, think about the fact that even though we don't use the word computer to describe these devices and describe these actions, these are computers we're dealing with. And technology demands that, the, the progression of technology demands that it's going to happen more and will completely conquer our lives if it hasn't already. We talk a lot about politics on the podcast, and that's because you can't really separate technology and politics. You can't really separate anything in politics. I know a lot of people don't like to hear it, but it's true. Politics affects us all, whether or not we like thinking about it. And I certainly like thinking about it, but I understand if you don't. I understand if you don't. Even if you don't, though, it's still affecting your life. Now, activism is an important element of politics. And many years ago, activism was difficult, right? If you had a cause, it was kind of tough. It was kind of complicated. You needed really serious, prominent leaders to get that cause out there. How did you build a community to make change in the world and get things done? Now, I don't want to discount the successes that activists have had in the pre-internet past, right? That would be just silly and illiterate to discount that. Even within recent memory, uh, not necessarily recent memory within the lifetime of myself or or probably most people who are listening, but fairly recent memory, right? The civil rights movement, the gay rights movement in the 70s, these movements had tremendous success and they had success without the benefit of the internet or really very much technology at all. But what the internet does is that it turns everybody into an activist, not just through social media, but through concerted campaigns that a wide variety of nonprofit organizations run. Now, anybody can be an activist thanks to the internet, and the internet's potential as a result of that has changed our society for the good and for the bad as well. And we will talk a lot more about that on next week's show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will be here next week with more news and commentary and good stuff and maybe some surprises for you. We all like surprises, right? Well, if you don't, you should. My name 
is Steve Tushanko. Courage.